Evan, do you like to help your friends out? It depends. If our friends are asking me to help them move, then no, I absolutely do not <laughs> like to help my friends out. But what if your friend had a weekly radio show and podcast and just wanted you to tell someone about it? Yes, I could totally do that. That is much easier than me trying to carry a piano down into a basement, which has happened to me in the past, and you know who you are. <laughs> friends. We are not asking you to carry a piano for us, but if you like what you hear, please tell someone about us. As soon as this episode is over, go tell your spouse, your closest friend, a parent, a coworker, or share one of our posts on social media. However, if you don't like what you're hearing, please do not. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anybody. Just disregard this message. Don't worry about it. Forget about us. Yep. Go on with your merry day. But regardless, thank you for listening. I'm Kevin. And I'm Stephanie. And during our marriage, we have dealt with an electrocution, a brain tumor, brain surgery. Then doctors telling us that children were not in our future, followed by miscarriage, and then Kevin's cancer diagnosis. However, today, we live a life completely healed and restored with three healthy children who doctors said were not possible. And we're here to tell stories that inspire, give hope, and brighten your day. Welcome to Tell Us a Good Story. This episode is being presented to you by Luby Companies, a custom home builder here in central Ohio. Let them be your builder for life. They're freaking awesome. Hello, friends. Welcome to a very, very special episode where we attempt to honor the men and women who lost their lives 20 years ago this weekend on 9-11-2001. We want to share the conversation we had last year with Joe Dittmar, who is a 9-11 survivor. This has actually been the most downloaded episode of our podcast, and rightfully so. This man was on the 105th floor of the World Trade Center South Tower when the terrorist attacks started. And of the 54 people in that business meeting, he was only one of seven to actually survive. Where were you, Kevin, when 9-11 hit? I was in my second day of my first professional job in an accounting firm. We were doing training and uh, one of the HR people ran in, turned on television and we saw the first tower go down and we're like, what is this? And we just, you know, training's over. We are now watching ABC News. And then I don't know how long it was later, 45 minutes later, 50 minutes later, when the next tower went down and everyone in the room, silent, shocked. And then they showed the Pentagon getting hit. And the kid beside me ran out of the room as soon as he saw the Pentagon get hit. And apparently his uncle works at the Pentagon. Mm. And so I went out in the hallway, tried to console him, tried to calm him down as he was trying to call his uncle, who he obviously couldn't get a hold of, calling his parents. And he was in a state of shock, just wanting to make sure his uncle was okay. And yeah, my second day on the job, my first professional job out of college, 2001. Kevin, I was actually in nursing school and I was doing my rotation for pediatrics at Children's Hospital. And I remember being in my patient's room and the parents were in there and they had just turned on the Today Show and they were watching that. And I was remember getting my uh, patient's vital signs and all of a sudden the mom just started screaming and we looked up and that's when we first saw the tower go down. The very first, or not, not the tower went down, it was hit for the very first time. And we had no clue what was happening. 
And I just remember the parents just kept watching and I had to continue obviously to treat each patient that I was assigned to that day. So I remember going to the next patient's room and same thing, the parents were glued to their TV. At that point, parents started freaking out. They were on their phones trying to get their kids out of school. They wanted to pick them up. They couldn't get through the school system phone lines because all the other parents were trying to get their kids out of the schools. It was complete chaos. I just think that day, if you're an adult, if you lived during that time, you know 20 years ago where you were on that day. You just instantly remember that day. This was our generation's GFK assassination moment. Yes. Everyone knows where they were when they heard or found out this tragic news. Absolutely. So please join us, friends, as we remember the families who lost their loved ones 20 years ago. We hope you guys enjoy this very special episode of Tell Us a Good Story. Steph, I am so honored for this next guest. This is going to be very special for us. I'm very, very, very excited that you made this happen for me. Yes. You threw out the idea. I had to execute it. Yes, you did. But we found the perfect guest for this. Very excited. So ladies and gentlemen, our next guest has been featured on many different media platforms, including the Chicago Tribune and NPR. He is a devoted husband, father of four, grandfather of four, and a 41-year veteran of the insurance industry. However, we didn't invite him here to talk about insurance. (laughs) We invited him here because on September 11th, 2001, this man was on the 105th floor of the World Trade Center's South Tower when the terrorist attacks started. And of the 54 people in that business meeting, he is one of only seven to have survived. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Tell Us a Good Story, Mr. Joe Dittmar. Well, thank you. Thank you for allowing me to be here. I, I, I appreciate the opportunity, always appreciate the opportunity to be able to talk about uh, what is clearly one of the most um, impactful events in, in most of our lifetimes. We are honored, Joe, to have you on our podcast here. And 9-11, I guess for our generation, is one of those days that you remember where you're at. Mm-hmm. Okay. So for like my dad, And your dad, we've asked them in the past, hey, where were you at when JFK was assassinated? And they could tell you immediately, this is where I was. Mm -hmm. Well, for us, we can tell you exactly where we were when 9-11 hit. That resonates with us, with our generation. I know it was my second day, my first job ever professionally. You were working at Children's Hospital. Children's Hospital when that took place. Mm -hmm. The kid next to me in training uh, ran out of the room when he found out that the Pentagon was hit because his uncle worked at the Pentagon. And we just know, I mean, it's crystal clear with us where we're at, but you, Joe, have a first hand encounter of what took place. So we will shut up here Mm -hmm. and let you speak, but we want to give listeners an opportunity to hear the memory of what took place and honor just the police officers and everyone who lost their lives, right? Almost 3000 people that morning. They're the ones. Yes. The ones. Had lost their lives that day. And we want to honor them with this memory and, and hear your story of what happened on the day. So Mr. Joe Dittmar, thank you for joining us. All right. I'm glad to be here. Like I said, and it's really 
an exciting opportunity to be able to be part of your uh, podcast. I uh, I hope this uh, is of interest to lots of people. It's always great to be able to tell the story. Um, you mentioned the insurance industry in your intro, and like you said, I've been in the business for 41 years. The trade centers were basically like a mecca for the insurance industry. Virtually okay. every insurance organization in the country, maybe in the world, had offices there. Wasn't unusual at all for somebody like me uh, to be at a meeting there. At the time that this happened, I was working for CNA Insurance Company in Chicago. We lived in Aurora, a suburb of Chicago. When I got to Two World Trade Center, the South Tower, the building that I was in, I thought it was pretty amazing, the security people. Both of those buildings had as many as 25,000 people in them at any particular point in time. Each of those buildings had their own zip code. So this is how big of a community this is, right? And yet these security people seem to know who belonged in there, not by a badge or anything else, just looking in your eyes, looking in your face. They knew who belonged and who didn't belong. I walked in. I clearly didn't belong. And, uh, The security guy gave me the little wiggly finger to come over to the security desk. And uh, he took my picture electronically and he transferred it onto a little white card. That little white card is actually a little bit right over my shoulder here. And um, he, uh, on that card went my name, the name of the company that I was visiting, Aon Corporation, the floor that they were on, 105. How long the card was valid for it was valid until September 12th. 2001 and a barcode and the barcode was the most important thing on that little white card and that was because that was that contained all the electronic information i just mentioned but that was also the way that you swiped your way through the electronic turnstiles that separated you from the elevator banks in the building Uh, both buildings were identical 110 stories high 110th floor in the north tower was the Windows of the World restaurant. Okay. Unfortunately, that was open that day at that time. Uh, the 110th and the 107th floor in the South Tower, the building that I was in, uh, these were observation decks. And thank goodness it was too early in the morning for them to be open. Uh, we were ready to swipe our way through the electronic turnstiles to get on this big bank of elevators that could hold maybe 60, 70, 80 people to take up on an express basis to the 72nd floor where you would switch off and then go up to where we were going in the 105th floor, which at that time was the highest occupied level of the South Tower. Uh, one, Like I said, 110 and 107 were observation decks. The other floors above 105, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, elevator equipment, elevator cabling, so no human beings. So we're going up to 105, highest occupied level. Wow. The meeting was supposed to start at 8.30. Insurance meetings never start on time. Uh, 8.30 kind of came and went. Uh, people standing around talking about football or talking about kids' soccer, talking about anything but insurance, okay, and drinking Starbucks. And uh, at 8.46, the lights flickered. That's it. We were in an internal conference room, no windows, so we couldn't see anything. We didn't hear anything. Didn't feel anything. Just the 
flicker of the lights. Almost immediately, a, a guy by the name of Rick Blood from Aeon Corporation, he came bounding into the room and he said, hey, there's been an explosion in the North Tower. We got to evacuate. 54 intelligent human beings all in the same room, all at the same time. We all did the same thing to poor Rick. We're fine, man. We're fine. Let us have our meeting. This is New York. Stuff happens. We weren't that nice with our language. So let's just let us have our meeting, okay? And Rick kind of looked at us with a bit of a forlorn look, and he said, no, no, you don't understand. He says, I'm one of those volunteer fire marshals. It's my job to get people off 105, 104, 103, and I can't leave until everybody leaves, and, and, and I want to leave. And I know Rick got everybody out of that room that day because I was the last guy out. He escorted us all to the nearest fire stairwell in the South Tower. And when we got there, that's where he proceeded to tell us that we were now going to walk down 105 flights wow. of steps. Oh, yeah. What a bunch of happy. <laughs> Everybody was so happy. Right. I mean, you know, it was and it was really kind of an interesting moment because there we are. The main cell tower for all of southern Manhattan was on top of the North Tower, the first building that was struck. So cell service gone, virtually gone. Right. Um, and if you're thinking to yourself, OK, get on a regular landline, get on a regular phone. Well, that wouldn't be a bad idea. Except that everybody in New York are now calling on those landlines to their mom, dad, sister, brother, husband, wife, aunt, uncle, trying to figure out if everybody's okay, what's going on. Uh, cell service was gone. The landlines were totally overmatched from a communications perspective. Um, if you've ever served in uh, the armed services for the country, uh, you know, what I'm about to say is an absolute truth. The first thing you do when you attack the enemy is you cut the lines of communications. And that's exactly what happened that day. Now, whether it was accidental, whether it was intentional, that's exactly what happened that day. So now you've got this group of 54 type A's standing there at 105, getting ready to go down the steps, can't communicate with anybody, not knowing what's going on. And we were pretty nicked off. I mean, we were kind of upset. We were PO'd. And I'm sure you're thinking to yourself, my God, didn't you understand what was going on? And that is the point. Each and every one of you knew way more what was going on outside and even inside those buildings than any of us that were right there. We had no clue. So you didn't even hear it in no. your conference room. No, we, we, we could not hear anything. It, it was, it was a, a conference room, like I said, that was buried in the middle of the 105th floor with four walls around. And because of meeting rooms like that, they're usually soundproofed so that, you know, if you're having a meeting and people get loud, the people that work out there aren't going right. to hear anything and vice versa, right? So it was the perfect storm of places to be, okay? And yeah, uh, we, we really had no idea what was going on other than what Rick had told us, which explosion in the North Tower. We started to head down the steps. When we got to the 100, uh, from, uh, down from 105 to the 90th floor, the fire stairwell door 
at 90, which should have been shut, okay, because they all automatically shut when there's an emergency, was propped open. And everybody was filing out of the fire stairwell and onto the 90th floor. Um, I'm in the fire insurance business. Now, how ironic is this? Okay. Um, I know better. Mm. Anybody that's had a kid between 14 and 18 years old knows what happens when you tell them not to do something, right? They do it. All right. Uh, you can be 45 and an insurance guy and be just as dumb. I, I followed everybody out onto the 90th floor, um, not knowing the building, not knowing whether we had to switch fire stairwells. What I can tell you, it was probably the worst 30, 40 seconds of my life. Looking out uh, those windows to the north and seeing that building, these huge black holes in the sides of the building, gray and black billows of smoke pouring out of those holes, flames redder than any red I'd ever seen before. Looking up the side of the building and beyond the top level, and if you remember, it was a crystal clear September day in New York that day. I remember being able to see through that smoke, through that fire, and into those huge black holes. And I see pieces of fuselage of a large plane lodged inside the building. I, I, the first thing that went through my mind, I said, how did the pilot not see this building? How did he miss? But he didn't miss. He didn't miss. And you see all that. You see furniture, paper, people being pulled out of the building by force against their will. Mm. Incredible, gruesome sight. And I got to tell you, I was so afraid, so afraid. That pit of your stomach feeling come over me that everybody has had in their lifetime, whether it was yesterday or a week ago, a month ago, a decade ago, guys have had it just as much as any woman, that pit of your stomach. I want my mommy feeling. Just wanted to go home. I didn't want to be there. I wanted to go home. And I turned around to leave. People on that floor were screaming at the top of their lungs. And yet they seemed to be frozen, mesmerized by what they saw, frozen in fear. I'm not sure, but they seemed to be frozen. Not me. I was going to go. I had to go. I turned around very quickly to leave, go back to the fire stairwell that I was in. And right behind me was a gentleman by the name of Lud Picaro from the Zurich Insurance Company. He was in that meeting with me. Huge human being, all-American middle linebacker at University of Pittsburgh. So this guy wow. was a big man. And when I turned around, I almost knocked him over with my stubby little body. That's how much of a hurry I was in. And he put his big hands on my shoulders. He said, where are you going, man? What are you going to do? And I said, I'm getting out of here. What are you going to do? And he said, yeah, good idea. I think I'm going to do the same thing. And then he pointed over to the right to the restroom. And he said, but before I go... I'm going to go. And that simple decision, that simple delay in Ludd's leaving, that two and a half minutes or so that he delayed cost him his life. That simple decision. I got back to the top of the fire stairwell and they're making an announcement over the PA system. The event's been contained to the North Tower. We believe the South Tower is safe. 
we suggest that if you work in a South Tower, you return to your workstation. If you are a visitor, we suggest that you stay where you are until further notice. If you feel you need to leave, please proceed with caution. Thank you for the head shake. I love it because that's exactly how everybody reacts. So they say, how could they say that? Right. But think about this. There's a woman or man in charge of building security at Two World Trade Center. They're down at the lobby level at this point. And you know there's a cop on one side. There's a firefighter on the other side. They're looking at this person in charge of security and saying, you got 25,000 people maybe in this building. You can't let them outside. It's raining concrete steel bodies. You can't let them out. What are you going to do? And I'm sure this person thought to themselves, well, wait a minute. Our electricity was on. Air ventilation system was working just fine. Electricity good. Elevators going up and down. Hey, let's hold off. Let's not do anything too rash. Let's just wait and see and find out what's going on. Who would have ever thought that in 18 minutes, the same exact thing would happen to our building. Now, I'm from Philly originally. Um, I'm in New York. There's not a lot of great love loss between New Yorkers and Philadelphia. It's mostly a sports thing, but it's one of those moments where I said, you know what? I'm out of here. I can't, I can't wait. And I, I, I didn't hesitate. I continued to make my way. Um, got down to the 72nd floor. The st- that floor in both buildings was called the Sky Lobby. So it was the 44th floor in each of those buildings because they couldn't run elevators straight up 110 stories. They had these natural breaks where you would take elevators and then you'd switch off to go to another set of elevators. So the 72nd floor was where we were coming down from, uh, you know, 105. But we were coming down the steps at this point. We get to to that 72nd floor at Sky Lobby level. Mary Weeman, the woman that had got me to the meeting, she's screaming at me to go to the elevator with her. She was not going to walk down 72 more, 78 more flights of steps in her shoes. She was going to take the elevator. She was putting the word in there that we can't use on your podcast. <laughs> and, 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 and she was just determined, bound and determined that I should get on this elevator. I said 72nd and it's 78th floor. Um, And so we're there at 78. She's screaming at me to go. And finally, some common sense took over my brain. Building, state address, fire. mm -mm. Not going to go in the elevator. I should go back to the steps. Arguably the best decision I've made in what is still my life. Because I was somewhere between 74 and 72 when the second plane plowed through our building. That plane plowed through our building between floors 77 and 82 on an angle. Never felt anything like that in my life. This fire stairwell that we're inside, it's concrete bunker, right? And it starts to shake so violently from side to side. It angles. I, I can't tell you. I'm not an engineer. But it's shaking back and forth. I feel this heat ball blowing by. us. this jet fuel. You could smell it. And this thing's just rocking back and forth and back and forth. And it felt like forever. Maybe it was seconds, maybe a minute. And it finally settled. And you would think that there would be massive pandemonium. Nothing but a stunned silence, total stunned silence. 
Everybody did the same thing at that point, too. We all grabbed for those cell phones to try to see if we could communicate, get out the message. And you know what? It was one of those moments where ignorance truly was bliss. What we didn't know couldn't hurt us. The cell phones weren't working. It was a blessing. It was a blessing because we really didn't have that much of a clue of what was going on. We saw the plane in the other building. We thought a, a fuel cell from that jet blew and that's why our building shook so violently and everything was going on and why we smelt the jet fuel and felt this heat ball blowing by us. Um, never did we know we were just two, three floors below a strike zone. I mean, there were people in that stairwell that we were in on crutches, had a cane, getting out of a wheelchair, overweight, just scared to death. And everybody else became their helpers. Everybody else physically and emotionally helped everybody else down the steps who couldn't do it for themselves. It was an unbelievable, beautiful thing to see this in this moment of crisis. We started down that stairwell again, and um, we saw a lot of different things. Some things were almost comical. For instance, one place in time I had never seen so many pairs of women's shoes. <laughs> now you're 70 flights above ground, right? And you're in three or four inch heels, like they say in New York, forget about it. There was a lot of barefooted women that day, you know? Egress was fine, two, three, four people wide. No problems there. Everybody heading in the same direction. Now, when you guys were going, were you running down the stairs? Were you walking down the stairs? How... Like, even when you first came out into the fire stairwell, before you even knew what was happening, how did your speed shift during that time? Well, that's a great question. Everybody loves to ask that one. If you've ever been in a fire stairwell, and I hope you never have to be from 105 flights, um, the, the fire stairwells are what they call switchback steps, okay? So they go down this way, and then they come back this way, and they go down this way and back this way. You can't run. Because all that momentum would just take you into a wall at the end of each set of steps. So you get this little skip thing going, okay? And you, if you have the luxury to be able to do this, you hold the handrail, which can help pace in your pace a little bit, but you really can't run, okay? And then when we got down after the building had been hit and we're you know, on the 70th floor, 69th floor, we're running into other people that are at those levels. That's the first traffic we started to have. And that slowed us down even more. You think about it. We were on 105, the highest occupied level of the building. We were the last group down. down. And then we were the last group to get through the strike zone. So, I mean, this is the first time we're bumping into people. But it wasn't like they said it was uh, in the 90s when the, the building was bombed in the 90s. They, um, they said that it went dark and uh, there was a lot of foot traffic and nobody could see and nobody could get down. This was a little bit different. Um, the, the stairwells were wide enough at this particular point in time. The backup power was lighting, the emergency lighting, so we were good. The ventilation system was still pumping through. It was warm, but it wasn't ridiculously hot, okay? Um, And we were very fortunate to be able to move along at a pretty good clip because all that that I just said, plus 
we're all going in the same direction. I just can't imagine dealing, like you said, handicapped people or, you know, someone in a wheelchair trying to get them down from 70th floor, 60th floor, whatever. Um, that's incredible. People, you know, just help guide them along the way in traffic. Uh, I mean, there were, there were people that physically lifted, held, uh, you know, assisted people. And then there were the Joes of the world that were doing the, Hey, we're going to be okay. We're going to get out of this. Okay. We're going to be all right. Come on. What do you mean? You can't go. Come on. You can go. Let's go. Come on. Let's keep moving. Blah, blah, blah. We had to do that. Yeah. We had to do that. It was our duty to do that. Um, you don't think about it. You just do it. We were, like I said, all heading in the same direction uh, until the 35th floor. Um, that's the first time we had encountered the police, the firefighters, and the paramedics from uh, New York City and a Port Authority coming in the other direction. And just the looks in their eyes told the whole story. Just the looks in their eyes, no words. They knew. They knew. They knew they were going up those steps to try fight a fire that they couldn't beat. They knew they were going up those steps to try to save lives that they couldn't save. Incredible. And doing this for 18 years, I tell myself, I'm never going to cry. I'm never going to do this. I'm never going to get upset. It's amazing. How could you not? Bravery. How could you not? you're right. I mean, it's just out of complete and utter respect for these women and men that would just do what they did Mm. and know that there was no chance, not a chance. And they volunteered to do this because we found out afterwards that nobody had to go in unless they wanted to. And they volunteered Mm. to do this. At Mm. this point, did you know that the, the impact that you felt was from another plane? Did you know any of this yet? We didn't know anything until we got out of the building. Um, that was the first chance we had to actually hear something. Now it's New York. And, you know, we heard lots of things like they, there were terrorists and they were uh, parachuting into New York city and there, and, you know, all this crazy stuff and New Yorkers being as bold as they are, they're running towards the trade center as we're trying to get oh away my. from it with their video cameras and wanting to take pictures mm-hmm. and stuff like that. How long did it take you to get from the 105th floor out the building? Uh, 50 minutes, five zero, 50 minutes. Really? Mm-hmm. Which probably felt like five hours. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's 50 minutes is a long time, way longer than you would think for walking down 105 flights of steps then down through a concourse underneath the two buildings and then coming back up and then getting out. And we knew what time the plane hit our building. And that's when we started to evacuate almost immediately. Um, and when I got out of the building and across the street in front of St. Paul's Chapel, I just kind of glanced at my watch, right? To see what time it was. It's exactly 50 minutes. And I thought, wow, what a long time. That was a long time to get down. Um, was it just chaos once you got out of the building? I have never seen a situation like this less chaotic wow. than I saw it that day. I'm telling you, the people there, were, whether they were visitors like us or the New Yorkers, we were bound and determined that we were going to get out of the way. We were going to get into someplace safe. Then we would figure out what's going on. You, everybody says it must have been like crazy. Sure, there were people hurt. When we were down in the concourse of the building coming out, uh, that was the first chance we had to see people that were really severely affected by the event, uh, you know, uh, Missing limbs, uh, open wounds, blood and gut stuff. Yeah. There were, there were, it was not as crazy as you would have ever thought. And part of that was because most of us had no clue what was going on. Gosh. Now, when we got out, now we start hearing. Now we start understanding. We were about eight blocks north of the building. I had um, bumped into a a uh, business associate of mine coming out of the building and we walked out together and he said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I think I'm, I'm, I'm stuck. I I'm supposed to go back to 30th or to uh, Penn station, get on the train, go back to Philly, get in my rental car, drive to the Philly airport, fly back to New York. I don't think that's going to happen. And my friend David that I'm talking about said, yeah, I don't, I don't think it, it is. Why don't you come with me? I live on the upper West side. I said, okay, great. He said, yeah, um, my wife works in the North tower on the 40th floor and I haven't heard from her. And I said, okay, that's not good. And he said, yeah, he says, I'm really, really concerned. Um, I said, all right, let's go. Um, where do you live? 111th street, upper West side. I said, that's a long way away. And he said, you got something better to do. And I said, you're right. Let's go. So like I said, we were eight blocks north when we came across uh, a laundry, uh, commercial laundry, doors wide open, uh, blaring out uh, WINS radio, all news station, blaring out that this was an on-purpose terrorist attack. Our jaws just dropped to the ground. The next couple of sounds that we heard are the ones that those of us that were there that day hear every day. The unmistakable sound of the twisting steel, the crumbling concrete that was once the South Tower, the building that we had been in only 58 minutes earlier, coming to the ground. Even more hauntingly, the sound of hundreds of thousands of people in the streets of New York all screaming, the same blood-curdling scream all at the same time. It's the first thing I hear in the morning, last thing I hear every night. Never goes away. We got into a friend of David's apartment 
in the Tribeca section of the city where we were. We were really lucky to have that he knew somebody. And we did what all of you did once we were there. We started watching the TV, trying to understand what was going on, trying to figure out if we could communicate with anybody. We hadn't. Uh, Blackberries had just hit the scene at that particular point. One guy had a Blackberry. We were thinking we were going to get lucky to communicate with that. That was gone. Um, well, we're about five, six hours into the event. And... Uh, one of the true heroes of that day, no matter what his politics are now, one of, one of the true heroes of that day uh, got on the TV, the mayor of New York, uh, Rudy Giuliani. He said, New York, this has been a tough day. We are New Yorkers. We're going to get through this. We're going to recover. And I know all of you just want to get home. No truer words were ever spoken, man. And he said it again. He said, I know all of you just want to get home. We're going to try to help with that. We've got enough confidence in our uniforms and our security right now. We're going to reopen the subways. Reopen the subways. My God. And my friend David, who lived on the Upper West Side, said, come on, we're going to the subway. I said, what? we got to go through Midtown, you know, Empire State. But we didn't know what the next target was, right? We didn't know what the next target was going to be but david was convincing we got over to the uh nearest subway station couldn't get down the steps it was so crowded mm. with people trying to get down to take the subways uh we got on the second train that pulled in didn't know it was an express we didn't care it was heading north it was going in the right direction the second stop it made was 32nd street penn station amtrak the way I'd gotten into Dodge, the way I was going to get out. And David knew I just wanted to get out. Even if it was just go to get out to go to Philly, Amtrak was doing a great job that day, bringing empty trains in from New Jersey and getting people out. And so we had heard this. We knew this. I knew this. I said, man, I just want to get out of here, okay, anywhere but here. And uh, we both got off the subway train together at 32nd Street. We... Uh, you know, never said a word to each other. We just kind of walk in looking like a couple of tourists, not knowing where we're going. A woman from Amtrak, she sees me. She wiggles her finger over at me. She says, where are you going, honey? I said, I want to go to Philadelphia. She says, great. There's a train down here about to take off. And I reached into my suit coat pocket to give her my ticket. I had a round trip ticket, right? And she looked at me and she said, are you kidding me, sweetie? We're not collecting tickets today. <laughs> Some things in New York never change, you know? <laughs> so, uh, it, you know, it was kind of an interesting moment. And I got down on that train and you go underneath the Hudson River in a tunnel and you come up on the Jersey side. You look back at what once the, was the greatest skyline in all the world. Now, big gray cloud. Wow. Yeah, it's very sad. It was 80 minutes on that trip. People sitting and standing packed into that train. And not a word was spoken. Not a word. There weren't any words to say. When we got down to 30th Street in Philly, I got off the train and found my rental car. I, I kind of had gold because I had a form of transportation that wasn't being grounded, landed, or stopped. And I decided that I wasn't going to try to drive back to Illinois at that point in time. Um, instead, I go up and 
stay with my mom and dad. And um, when I got to the house, my mom was there waiting for me. She helped me into the house and I hit the floor in front of the TV, tried to watch TV for a while, passed out, mm-hmm. uh, you know, physical fatigue, mental fatigue, whatever. And I went up the steps, got a few hours of sleep, woke up the next morning, called the office right away, let them know that I wasn't going to be in. It was a good thing because they thought I was dead. Mm. I proceeded to make the 14-hour trip in the car back to Aurora, Illinois, did it in about 12 and a half hours. just wanted to get home. And Joe, at what moment did you call your wife? The first time I got my wife was about seven hours after the building had been struck. Wow. There was just no way to communicate. My wife uh, decided that she was safer staying at her work because she didn't want to go home and see a red flashing light on the answering machine with bad news. So she would stay around people who she knew who could support her if she needed the support. The kids started calling her and they said, did you hear from dad? Did you hear from dad? And, and she was like, oh, he's going to be fine. You know, your dad, he's got a cell phone with him. But she had not a lot of faith that uh, I had made it through and was starting to think already about uh, what was going on. But um, I got my mom first. <laughs> calling your mom's like calling CNN, right? I mean, you know, everybody, all the cousins I don't even talk to anymore now know what's going on, right? <laughs> but but she was trying to reach uh, Betty, my wife, and um, she couldn't get her. I got my middle daughter in Arizona because her, her, her landline was free. Okay. I got her and told her what was going on. And I said, you need to get mom and let her know I'm okay. Just get to mom and let her know I'm okay. Okay. And she did that. And, um, so my wife knew, but even when I finally got her, like at about the seventh hour, what a call. Um, very emotional as you can well imagine. Um, she had said, you know, I left you a bunch of messages. Mm. I listened to the messages later when we were able to recover everything. And the first one was exactly typical of her. I know you, you got your cell phone, call me. You always have that thing on your ear. Just give me a call. Let me know what's going on. Blah, blah, blah. By the seventh message. I couldn't even understand what she was saying. She was so panicked at that point. But uh, a lot of tears, but happy tears on that phone call. A lot of, a lot of tears. We, um, I, like I said, I stayed with my parents and I started driving back to Aurora. Uh, I was about 15 minutes outside of Aurora uh, when my cell phone rang for what was like the hundredth time and I'm talking to my wife and I'm talking to her for like the 50th time. Right. And, and I said, I said, Hey, hon, I'm, I'm almost home 10, 15 minutes away. And she said, um, okay. And I was like, hesitation, <laughs> something going on. And, and she said, well, actually they decided they were going to have a mass over at our lady. And I, I stopped there mid sentence. 
I said, yeah, it's a good day to go to church. I'll be there. I'll meet you there. Uh, pulled down the Ola Road, went to pull into the church parking lot. It was like Christmas, no room at the end, you know. Mm. Uh, finally found a parking spot. And when I walked up and opened the back door to that church, I don't know whether I was more afraid at that moment or the day before. See these hundreds and hundreds of pairs of eyes all staring back at you, knowing where you had been. And I looked over to the right, to the, the pew where we always sit, Roman Catholics, we always sit in the same pew, okay? So I look over there, and there is my wife and a couple of my kids and some of my friends. You'll never see or hear my wife during any of this, okay? Uh, as much as she loves to talk and loves people, she is such a great human being. I don't know how I got so lucky. Um, she's not real demonstrative, so to see this non-demonstrative woman jump over the back of that pew, run to the back of that church, give me this gigantic hug and kiss better than anything a man could ever want. I knew I was home. Mm. That's the moment I knew I was home. And that's the story, man. That is the story. Ah. <laughs> uh. I can't imagine. If I can give you a standing ovation right now. Oh my gosh. Yeah. God bless you, Joe. Wow. That's amazing. So did you ever, have you ever seen those other six survivors from that meeting that day? That's a, that is a great question. Um, Yes, but very seldom, and most of them don't want to talk about it. I am absolutely of the seven, the only one that does like what we're doing here today and gives presentations and stuff like that. For me, that is this is the catharsis. This is the ability to get through this, not over it, because you never get over it. It's like your shadow, it follows you wherever you go and you have to manage it. And this is how I manage this. Um, the other people are more typical of survivors and most typical survivors just want to bury it and make like it didn't happen. And I can only tell you that some of them have suffered very much because of that. Um, and we try, God, we, we tried to make everybody feel that they could come out and talk about this thing and, you know, let us know what you're feeling or get some help or do whatever. I belong to a survivor's group. It happens to be a group that's out of Chicago um, because that's where I was at the time. And we're like the, uh, you know, uh, American Legion for 9-11 survivors. And we're here for them. And every once in a while when you think, now, it's 19 years. Uh, we're never going to hear anybody. You get this email or you get this phone call, and it's somebody who said, hey, can I just talk to you about this? And uh, it's an amazing thing when you have that kind of breakthrough with somebody. Have you ever been back to Ground Zero? Yeah, sure. Um, 
first of all, because of the business I'm in, I had to go back to New York anyhow. Uh, okay. Right. I mean, you know, there's still, you know, that's the heart of uh, our business uh, nationwide. And uh, so we go back there, but yeah, uh, I've been to the Memorial. Oh, I don't know. First I was back and saw ground zero in its original form a form that I wish it was still in because that would really truly tell the story of that gigantic hole in the ground and that wreckage was the true ground zero, that ground zero that had wooden fences around it, that had people that wrote in Sharpies, I love you, mommy, I miss you, daddy. That was ground zero. Um, but the memorial is a beautiful thing. And I've had the chance to be there back there three or four times now for my own personal reasons, um, went to the museum when it finally opened. It's magnificent, absolutely magnificent. Spent seven hours the first time I went. My wife said, oh, my God, how can you do be in here so long and not get emotional? And I said, hon, I was there. I saw this. This is this is this. The shock value is for you because we've already had the shock. Those of us that were there, we've already had the shock. But it's an amazing place and um, a place where I always feel real close to the forty-seven folks that didn't make it out that day. I have a question for you. When the towers went down and you heard and you you know you heard it going down and you heard the screaming, there was a plume of smoke that just, you know, cascaded out. Did that hit you? Were you or were you at a distance where it didn't touch you? Death cloud, as I called it, the death cloud. Yeah, we were heading north. The wind was blowing from north to south that day, and it was pretty strong. So it was pushing the death cloud south and east. We were going north and west. So we were going completely in the opposite direction of the way the cloud was pushing. So we weren't hit by it. It felt like we could turn around and grab it, okay, because it was so huge as it was building through those canyons that you have in New York with the buildings being mm-hmm. as high as they are. Uh, but we never, we never were, we never got in, uh, inundated with it. Uh, we were very fortunate on that. I know a, a, a gentleman who uh, is one of the seven. Uh, he went east. He got hit with something that to this day, he didn't know what it was that he got hit with. Uh, and he had a slight injury. But what he told us was it went from day to night like that Mm. that was so thick that you just you couldn't even see your hand in front of your eyes that's how bad it was and he was lucky he was able to he he saw like a a fast food restaurant of some sort and the person that was inside the manager or whatnot saw him and grabbed them and pulled them in and said come on come in here you know and uh uh but uh yeah uh, myself and David, the, the two guys that were, of us who were walking together, we were very fortunate we didn't get hit by that. So what do you do, I guess, each year then on September 11th? Is there anything special you do as a family or as a survivor to remember about that, that day? I talk. I talk. Yeah. Um, on 9-11 every year, 
I talk. I have an event somewhere every year. This year is going to be interesting because now it's going to be a virtual event. But, but I but I talk and um, I have to. It's the only thing that's going to make me feel better. Yeah, everybody says, well, you know, don't you want to be with your wife? Don't you want to be with your kids? My family are my greatest, greatest support and rock. And they're the first ones that say, dad, you're talking about this. This makes you feel better. Go do it. It is very, very, very much part of the therapy that I need to do and will continue to have to do until I'm gone. So Joe, final question here before we let you go. Can you tell us and our listeners about the always remember initiative that you've started? Yeah, it's, it's really all it is, is the, impetus behind what I do. As I've mentioned, I'll give 50 to 60 presentations a year, a little bit different 2020 because of the COVID. But, um, and the concept is I don't take any payment for these speeches, but I go and if people have me come and, and give a presentation, the whole concept of this is just to be able to make people always remember this and never forget this. This is a part of our history that we can't forget. This is a part of our history that we need to uh, memorialize, that we need to remember the brave souls that lost their lives that day, um, you know, and make sure, make sure that those people who, the 3,000 who lost their voices that day are still continuing to be heard and allow their spirits so senselessly dashed that day to continue to rise and remind all of us that while they may have died, they didn't die in vain. And that's the impetus behind this. And this is what I do. And this is why I do it. And like I said, I will do it until my last breath. Mm. Well, Joe, thank you so very much for having the courage to tell us the story, right? We didn't give you any time limit and you were able to just give us all the details and so moving, so Mm -hmm. moving. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to have a conversation with Steph and I. Yep. You only made me cry twice. So that was good. (laughs) That's, that's pretty good. That's that's pretty good. (laughs) Uh, I got to tell you guys real quick before you go, before you, you, you make it official. You all think that I'm doing you this favor by giving you this presentation or this little talk for the podcast, but you and anybody that listens to your podcast, you're doing me a favor. You're allowing my wound to continue to heal. And I truly express total love for you and all those who listen. And thank you for helping me through this. Oh, our pleasure. Well, you will okay, be three times crying. <laughs> you just had to get in there, didn't you, Joe? All right, Joe, stop talking now. <laughs> well, Joe, sir, you will be in our prayers. And God bless you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Joe. Oh, you're quite welcome.